Let's read this together with one voice. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. You may be seated. So what does this mean? What does this mean for those of us living in America, in Minnesota, in these western suburbs of Minneapolis, whether you live in Plymouth, Wyzetta, or Maple Grove, or Corcoran, or Hamill, or Hopkins, or Minnetonka, or Orono, Navarre, Long Lake, Maple Plain, I, I've missed some, obviously. What does it mean? I, I was thinking long and hard about this message these last number of weeks, and especially this week, because we seem to live in a world where every day someone is seeking to invent a new convenience so that we won't have to suffer a little bit, right? They're trying to figure out how to make life less, you know, just less work almost, less pain. So you think about the fact that someone sat around and just imagine your life if you had to get up from your couch and had to turn a channel. I mean, that's a big deal. Or, or just imagine the fact that there's someone given time so that no longer do you have to take your hand and go like this up and down with a toothbrush. You can get an electric one. Or some of you think back, and some of you are living retro now, so you're probably doing this, but just imagine the cloth diaper that you would have to actually, and this gets a little, you know, I don't know where she'd say this, you had to actually wash, I mean, it was a mess. You bet. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. No. And, and you think about that, and then you actually, guys, I, I actually did this early on, where you have to take a cloth diaper and you have to use pins, and you're so afraid you're going to stick yourself or stick the baby, right? Because everything is about getting convenience so we don't have to suffer. And we live in a world where that's happening. And what does it mean for us in the church? We look for ways to make the gospel convenient. We look for ways so that people don't have to suffer. And I'm not saying that we're trying to suffer for suffering's sake. We'll talk about that. But I want to get into this and say, what does this scripture mean for us? What does it mean for you? What does that look like? It's really interesting as we've been looking at this passage of Scripture, the Beatitudes, and we're coming to this last one. We'll look at next week again. We'll be looking at the, the, the verse that follows here where it talks about reactions. We're going to talk about how do we live this out, the value of it and everything. But I want today to talk about this verse specifically. And Jesus used these Beatitudes. This is what I have to... It was kind of his... It was his speech that was given in order to say to people, if you want to be one of my followers, this is what your life will look like. You'll be blessed, but this is what it'll look like. And so when he would get to the end, can you imagine? He gets to the end and you go, he says, and guess what? If you follow me, you get to be persecuted. I'm sure the disciples are thinking in their mind, this is craziness. 
Jesus, you got this wrong. Just cut off that last one and we'll get a lot. You know, they're, they're the ones going around handing out applications. And I'm not kidding on this. Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He would go, and I think he would use this message in different places as a, as a way to say, this is what the kingdom's all about. And so he kind of is looking at you today and saying, I'm still taking applications. I want to draw you into these beatitudes, and if you do move into these beatitudes, the first thing he says is really clear. When he says, blessed are those who are persecuted, he's not suggesting that his followers have some kind of sadistic enjoyment of pain. Jesus is merely setting realistic expectations. He's not sugarcoating his message at all. Jesus himself, if you look at his life, was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You think about his life. Believers, his relatives didn't believe him. They thought he was crazy. You think about uh, his hometown. He goes to his hometown. Not only do they reject him when he's speaking, but they actually try and drive him to the edge of the property, of the area there where there was a cliff to try and push him off. And then you think about his disciples. and We, we consider them slow learners. And I think about that, what does that make us? But you know, here are these disciples who are slow learners. They were so thoroughly self-absorbed that even hours before his death, they're found... They're, they're found fighting over who will be first. They're they're found sleeping. They're found eventually running away from the very persecution he said that would be a part of their life. And the Jews, his own people, as we see next week, they praise him one minute as he's coming down the road on this colt, and the next minute they've turned their back on him. Some are shouting, crucify him. And the Jewish people, the religious leaders of that day, these are the people who were really, the seminarians, the ones who really went you know, the distance with regard to we're going to follow God, they were people who actually had memorized often the whole Old Testament. That was kind of one of the requirements to get to a certain place. They knew every word of every book. I mean, if they should have understood and they should have recognized who Jesus was, they're the ones who should have been instead. They're not the ones who even recognize him. They actually persecute him with malicious rumors and they're constantly questioning him. They're harassing him and finally they're spitting on him and and mocking him. They beat him, and they put him through a torturous death that only criminals would experience. I don't think Jesus was being morbid. He was just saying, this is realistic. If you begin to take these beatitudes and they become a part of who you are, you will find yourself persecuted. This weekend, I had an opportunity to serve with a ministry and to participate in a ministry who have a vision weekend that John Stott founded. It's called Langham Partnership. And I kind of call it a mobile global seminary. John Stott had this idea and he looked around what was happening in the majority world, kind of what we used to call the third world, but that majority world where many of the closed countries to Christ are, he realized that there was a lot of people coming to faith in Christ, but they weren't being trained and deepened in the word of God. So he he, he actually went, um, when my father, he was the president of the seminary, John Stott met with my dad and said, I want to train scholars. Can you help us raise money to bring some of the brightest people living in these areas to come and to learn at a seminary? Now they're at a place where they have these people all around the world, these scholars who are training preachers, who are writing material in their own language, which you kind of go, what is a big deal? A commentary? Well, a commentary in their own context is incredibly important. But I was there this week, and I was hearing... Story after story after story of people who are talking about the persecution they're facing. 
And you would think you'd come away from there feeling like, oh, this is, whoa, this is bad. I am so charged up. I am so full of joy. One story of one lady who, who said she had to come to a place when she came to faith in Christ and she was praying and she had heard about it and she realized at a certain point she had to, to actually give everything and she was in prayer and she said, Jesus said to me, will you give me your life? And she said she did. She continued to pray them. A few days later, she's praying and Jesus comes to her and says, will you give me your husband? And she prayed and said, okay, God. And then Jesus, a few days later, she says, will you give me your children? And she knew in saying these things, it meant that they could possibly die. And she actually said to her husband, we have to prepare them because the doors could be broken down and someone could come. And so they had to tell them, someone could come because of your faith. And when they do something to you, it it won't last long because eventually you'll be forever in heaven. And, And can you imagine this? And she's saying, am I a good mother? And she said, you know what? If this were to happen to us, Just say the name of Jesus and say, I forgive you. And soon you'll be in the arms of Jesus. I I mean, think about it, folks. 70% of the world of believers, those who are Christians, are outside of, are are in, you know, 70% of the believers are in that that majority world. We're, We're not the main majority any longer. And many of them are facing this kind of persecution. And Jesus was saying, let's just be realistic. To be realistic. When I, what I think is interesting as I was praying about this, I said, so what does this mean for us? Well, there's a couple things I could just say. One, it means we've got to pray for them. We need to be aware of that. I don't think it calls us to get afraid. I think what it does is say, you know what? We have to recognize we have been given a gift in the sense that there's some, we have a place that's peace, there's laws that are reinforced, we can give thanks to that. We should be people of praise. But there's a second thing. This is what I began to think about it. This really does hit home, folks. Jesus isn't just saying it's a realistic expectation that those, and especially most of the believers around the world, are going to face. But reality is, it's a spiritual law that we will face. You kind of well, really? What do you? How's that? Any time this character of the Beatitudes get into your heart and you become formed like that, it is just a natural consequence. Eventually, if you are a person who's hungering after right relationship, who is seeking to be pure, who is seeking not to keep peace or enforce peace with power, but is seeking to make peace through right relationships, you're going to be face resistance. You're going to find opposition. That's a reality. You know, if you think of Galileo or Newton or, or Einstein, and we sometimes think they're scientific geniuses, I just have to share with you, Jesus was far more smarter than that. I'm not saying they're not smart guys, but these Beatitudes, when Jesus is sharing them, he's, you find in the Word of God, Jesus doesn't usually say, this is what you should do. Most of what you find in Jesus is, here's reality, you can live in it or not. And if you choose not to live in it, like the laws, they will break you. You're not really breaking them. And so he basically says, this is a spiritual reality, guys. It's the truth. If you sign up and this is who you become, you're going to face persecution. So I get on this plane on Thursday to go to this uh, conference to be a part of it. And as I'm sitting there and I'm processing, thinking through this message and thinking about the reality of this, it hit me as, you know, you don't want to sit near the engines, right? But as the engines set up, you have this, this law that Sir Isaac Newton discovered, really bright guy, 
In 1680s, these three laws of, of motion, this law that eventually aerodynamics was built on, especially the third law, which is, which is this law that, uh, that tells us about jet propulsion. Newton's law goes like this. Every action produces a reaction equal in force and opposite in direction. That's just a, a looking at reality. So as a jet plane is going to move, it, it gets its forward thrust because this rearward thrust of its engine pushes it forward. It, it moves forward as the exhaust moves it backwards. Do you see how that's working? And as Newton observed, for every action, there's a reaction equal in force and opposite in direction. So I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is an incredibly, incredibly bright guy. Well worth paying attention to. If you're here and you're kind of saying, I'm wondering, should I follow these things that Jesus has to say? I just want to tell you, if you want to live well and long and forever, pay attention to him. Jesus saw this principle at work before Sir Isaac Newton did. Jesus understood that this principle, which operates in the visible world of matter and energy, operates in the invisible world of spiritual dynamics. So long before he came up with it, what Jesus is making um, clear here is that if you, if you begin to operate in these Beatitudes and it begins to form your character, you're going to find and face pushback. You will feel resistance. There will be people who respond in anger towards you because as you move in a righteous way, it will cause a resistance. And I'll make this more practical in a moment for what it means for you. But when a righteous life, when an idea or a person moves into what is right, when someone goes after a right relationship, when someone brings integrity to a dysfunctional system and a dishonest system, when someone seeks to free someone from the bondage of sin or legalism or slavery or whatever it is, you can expect resistance, pushback. It's a spiritual law. It's a reality. You could say for every righteous action that produces a reaction... Equal in force and opposite in direction. So when Jesus confronted the legalism of his day, the religious power structures that were embedded with sin, you see this terrific action of equal force in the opposite direction being pushed back. He pushed forward with love and forgiveness and compassion and life. And they pushed back with hate and bitterness and anger and death. And he's just making a real point here. That's, what, that's reality. So when you, when you look at this, Jesus is just basically saying this, this beatitude is this. Every righteous action in this sinful world will produce an opposite reaction. So to make this really clear and, and kind of simple, one of the thoughts that, I, that, um, that came to me after I was thinking about this is I'm at this conference and, and Troy and Sarah Groves were there. And, and you, some of you remember Sarah because Sarah has done a few concerts for us here through the years. <clears throat> And Troy, I was asking him what he's doing, and he says, well, I'm working with International Justice Mission. And he starts telling me these incredible stories that he says, and I'm writing them down, and he goes, um, you can't share those. I said, well, can I share them generally? Yeah, you can talk about them generally. He was starting to tell me about something specifically, and I, he said I could share this part. In a place in the world where there are these 6-year-olds to 12-year-olds who have become taken, imprisoned, and they're slaves. These are boys being used as slaves in a, in a work industry. And he said they, they got word, one of the international justice people got word that one of the boys, somehow, they wanted to be free. And so they have for two years worked in an undercover operation in order to, not that this land doesn't have laws, but they don't enforce the laws. And they're working to free this child that they had heard about, and they're hoping to free a whole lot more. They actually, last Thursday, freed the first child. 
Now that's a cool thing. You think that's really great. That's a righteous action, pushing against a system. But can you believe this, that the people who are in this industry and they're working this industry, do you think they're excited about this? Why do you think they're going undercover? Troy was telling me one of the things, one of the reasons they have to be quiet about it is because it is this kind of thing where it's risky. You see, those guys aren't giving up their wealth and their system and all that they have in place and the power, and they're not doing it because it's, it's something, you know, they don't go, oh, yeah, that's, oh, you're right, that's, oh, we shouldn't be doing that. They push back with equal force, even to the point of wanting to get rid of them, even to the point that these guys who are working this are risking their lives. You see the principle at work? If you're hungry for righteousness, if you really want right relationship, this is how it works in your own life. You see, all of us, I, 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 I read this and I thought this was really well stated. One person had written, our energy can go into one of two places. We can pour our energy into maintaining our current structure of our personality. And the person didn't say this, but our personality usually is embedded with sin. See, we have sin in us, original sin, and that sin then gets into habits. It actually gets into our body, which come out in sinful acts. And so you can live your life protecting and putting your energy into protecting that, or you can hunger after righteousness, begin to live these beatitudes and say, you know what? When someone points something out, when someone's something, something, God, may I be so desperate to want you that I want you in my life to rearrange the system of my life more than I want to hold the power, whatever's going on, the familiar ways, whatever these are. And so then what happens? You get married and your wife says, you know, I see this thing. Guys, let's face it, right? You're kind of like, yeah, you either deny it or you don't want it. I mean, this is how it works. And they, they maybe push or point out something and you push back in anger. That's a form of resistance. That's part of what's going on. Wives, when your husband does the same thing. See, it's a part of the nature of the way God made this world. And what Jesus says is he's looking at spiritual realities. He's looking at you and my life, and he's getting really real about this. He's not getting us just to go, oh, yeah, the whole world out there, that's what's going on. We need to pay attention to that. We need to know what's going on. We need to pray. That is a huge deal. But in many ways, in the world out there, I'm talking to one guy who's a, who's, who, who's a doctorate and he works in Syria, which is a horrible place to be with all the stuff going on. He says he goes through the Middle East and he says God is showing up ways. He was a reformed guy. He's got to give up his theology. He's seeing miracles and visions and things that are happening in the church. It's exploding with life. Praise God we have peace. But you know what? Don't fool yourself. This beatitude applies to us. There is a spiritual reality, and Jesus, far smarter than Newton, saw this reality, and he says to each and every one of us, when I come and I push against your life with truth, are you going to live out the hunger and the thirst to have a right relationship? When you know that someone has hurt you and you want to move to bitterness, are you going to push back? Folks, this is where it really comes down to life. Is it going to make a difference in your close relationships, your marriages, where you work? There's a spiritual reality that Jesus seems to say is really important for us to understand. 
If you seek to live out this faith and this life of Jesus, you will encounter resistance. And you even yourself may give it. And thirdly, when Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted, he says because of righteousness. He does not say because of unrighteousness. I was reading a message from uh, a man who was a contemporary of John Stott, D.L. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Really, D. Lloyd Martin-Jones, he's got a weird name. Anyway, we've got a great, he's just a great preacher. They, these two guys were, had pulpits in London. And, and Jones goes on, and in it, he talks about this passage of Scripture, and he gives seven to eight things of what this righteousness isn't. I won't give you those. I'll just give you three. And, and they're really simple. Jesus is not suggesting pain for pain's sake. He's not suggesting unnecessary suffering. Here's the word of caution. Because I think what we can do is we can do things and then we can get angry at God or get angry at people and think, just, you know, we're, we're living this righteous life. And, and here's the things he says. First is this. Suffering, persecution that comes due to willful disobedience is not what Jesus is saying here. Don't confuse punishment as persecution. Jesus does not say and bless disobedience anywhere in the word of God. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 15, Peter's writing to these believers who are beginning to experience resistance and suffering and persecution. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. You can tell he's been tutored by Christ, because listen to us, he says, so that you may... Be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So he paid attention to these beatitudes. But listen to what he does say then. But if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal. Now we kind of go, yeah, yeah, that's, we get that. But you ever see criminals a lot of times when they do something wrong and they get caught, they're, they're kind of like, whoa, you're persecuting me. But here's what, the, here's what he says or even as a meddler. What? He talks about the way we live our faith. He includes that almost in a sense with all these other things. He's saying part of the way we live our faith is we live our faith, and when there's an opportunity to give the, the reason for the hope that's within us, when the Spirit prompts us, then we share it, and we need to be very careful in understanding that. We give the message to people, we do it in confidence, and we do it in boldness, but we don't try and run other people's lives. There's a difference between persecution and punishment. He also says there's a difference here, what I call suffering, this what I, unnecessary persecution that comes through foolish carelessness. You do something foolish, says the Proverbs, and you can expect some painful consequences. There's a couple of Proverbs where he says in Proverbs 19.3, a man's own folly ruins his life, yet his, ang- his heart rages against the Lord. It's this kind of idea that if you go throughout your life and you don't exercise, you don't take care of your body, you don't eat well, and then at a certain point you get to a certain age and things are breaking down your body and you go, man, God, thanks for giving me the body you gave me. He talks about the kind of situation where, um, and I'll talk to you guys, let's just say things are struggling in your marriage and things are really tough and, 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 and there's this desire that, you know, you start pushing yourself away. Some people have actually experienced divorce and when that happens... It isn't right, I'm not saying this is right in that you should do this or this is good, but it isn't right to go and say, well, they're persecuting me, thank you, God, when you've been married to your work all your life and haven't been engaged the way you should. You see, God does not bless foolish carelessness. 
A sluggard does not plow in season, so at harvest time he looks, and what does he do? He finds nothing. He should not go, man, God, I can't believe there isn't corn here. Then there's another one that's called suffering due to what I call fleshly offense. It's this sense of being offensive in your faith. And there's really a difference between being offensive and bearing the offense of Christ. It's too easy. People go, I am bearing the offense of the cross of Christ. I'm just suffering. When you yourself are the one that's doing the offending. There's a great story in the, in, in the, in the New Testament in Acts. And I, I love this because it's about Paul. Paul, when he was Saul, Acts 9, if you want to grab a Bible that's there or follow in the scripture above, he is at a certain point as he's persecuting the Christians. He comes along the Damascus Road. He is blinded by light. He's blinded physically, but here's what's cool. God, in blinding him physically, opens his spiritual eyes to see. So at a certain point, he's got to be led, and Ananias takes him, and in that point, he prays for him, tells him what his mission and what God's going to do, and it says the scales now fall off of his physical eyes. So now he's seeing as a whole person. That's the way God created us, with a spirit to hear and with a physical eyes to hear. They both should be operating. But many people never move to the place of the spirit. They continue in their flesh. And so when you look at the life of Paul, look at what he says. He accept, he's accepted by the believers hesitantly. So in verse 20 of chapter 9, now catch this, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a guy of action, right? He's, the day before he's, putting, he's persecuting them, now he's going around and he's sharing the truth. And he goes on and he says, all those who heard him were astonished. Is this the same guy? Is this re- really the beginning one? And the believers didn't even want him around. They didn't trust him. In verse 22, yet Saul grew more and more powerful, and here's the reality. He grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is Christ. How do you grow in power? One of the ways you grow in power, there's a couple ways. One is by knowledge brings power. The more you know the word of God, the more you understand it, the more it becomes a part of your life, the more these beatitudes become a part of who you are. Your character becomes strong, and through your character, the Spirit of God can do amazing things. The Jews try to kill him there, so he leaves, goes to Jerusalem. So in verse 28... And I love the humor of Luke in this. Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. What you have to understand is he goes to Jerusalem. They don't trust him at all. The disciples, the apostles, don't want anything to do with Paul until Barnabas, the son of encouragement, says, you know what, I'll take you in. He gives him an opportunity to stand before the apostles. They accept him in the community. And now Paul, as it says in 28, starts moving about freely in Jerusalem. And he's speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And he talked and he debated with the Hellenistic Jews, which were the Greek Jews. But they tried to kill him. Now, both places where he's done this, that, that, that reality is at work. He's pushing forth truth. They're pushing forth what? Hatred to kill. And when, verse 30, it says, when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. I think this is so funny because they're just looking at this. They see all this stuff happening. He's preaching boldly. People are riled up. They want to kill him, all the believers. And the apostles say, Paul, we would like for you to take a vacation. And Paul, we want you to stay there for a while because you are using an incredible gift God has given you, but you're using it in your flesh in such a way that it's not helping the cause of Christ here. This is not necessary suffering. And so Paul goes away, and he goes to his hometown, Tarsus, and some scholars think he stayed maybe 14 years, could have stayed seven years, where he was away 
growing in his maturity in the fruits of the Spirit so that his fruits would catch up to his giftedness. So some of you who are really gifted in that way and you understand, you have to understand sometimes the fruit is really important. And, and here's why I think it's funny. Because if you read it, he sent them off to Tarsus. They sent them off. And then it says, Luke writes in verse 31, then the church throughout, the, throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and were strengthened. That's humorous. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, not unrighteousness. And the last thing I just want to share with you is this. You notice something about this. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. And he gives a wonderful promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That sounds a little bit, you know, Jesus is kind of saying, you are the kind of people who will experience and enjoy and express heaven now. That sounds a little bit weird, but it's true. Do you remember where Jesus first gave this promise? Think of these Beatitudes. What's the first one? Blessed are the poor in spirit for what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's kind of this inclusio kind of thing he's doing. He's kind of you know, using this kind of, it's more than a literary device. He's again, he's a, he's a, Jesus is, a, is both God-man who speaks reality out, and here's the reality. He says, well, if you're poor, you're desperate, you get real about your sin, and you come to God and say, God, I can't do this. You're like Alcoholics Anonymous. You come and say, I have this sin addiction in me, and I'm powerless over it. I need you to save me. He says, when you come to that place, that's when you enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's when you move into the place where now God can begin to work in your life. So that as you begin to move through this, and all these things are beginning to be developed in you, you come now to the end and the natural result of the end as you grow in this kind of character is you will face resistance you will come against persecution this will be a part of your life but as a believer here in america one of the ways we we understand that is when we face it we need to understand and say god am i doing and sharing truth is it righteousness or is someone coming to me where i need to understand and grow because i hunger and thirst for righteousness and he says that kind of person will begin to experience they'll begin to enjoy and they'll begin to express the reality of the kingdom you enter this way and you move to a place where now you're in it isn't that cool jesus is really bright And I love this because he basically says you come to a place where as you have entered in, now you begin to enjoy and experience and you begin to express kingdom realities. Because if the circumstances of your life are kind of coming against you, what happens now is you go, I recognize it's not out here that makes me happy. It's not this that makes my life good. It's not because of this that I experience peace. It's peace that I have because of God. I live in a different place. I live in a different land. I'm not looking for my boss or for my husband or my wife or someone else to give me approval. There's going to be times when it's going to be difficult. There's going to be times I'm not looking for you as a church to give me approval. I Now, we all live in a place, if we choose to, we live in a land, we enjoy, we express ourselves in the kingdom of this land here on earth because we look to his approval. Because we're looking for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, you live in a whole new place. You get to live in this place where you not only get to enjoy, but you experience the presence of God. He's not talking about peace out here all the time. He's talking about a peace that is so central and so alive that now, when you begin to live that way, the people you work with are kind of going, what's going on? And you get to tell them, I'm living in a kingdom 
that is not yet fully here. Remember, heaven isn't up here someplace. When Jesus would say this, he's talking about a spiritual reality, a realm, a place of living in our hearts with God. It changes everything. Jesus loves you. He wants every person in this room to experience the kind of character and love that comes from entering into his presence and then living it out because you get to express love and joy and peace. When you're persecuted, you're resisted, you get to move into that. You get to bring heaven on earth. You Guess what? Jesus prayed, what, that heaven would come to earth, right? You get to bring it. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to close and we're going to say amen to this. We're going to sing amen. I'm, I, I, just, I really kind of like this song because it's uh, what all pastors like to hear when they preach. <laughs>